The Think Neuro podcast from Pacific Neuroscience Institute takes you into the clinic, operating room, and laboratory with doctors and surgeons who are tackling the most challenging brain diseases and disorders. Hi, my name is Anthony Effinger, and I'm your host. The COVID-19 virus is a shapeshifter. Two years into the pandemic, we're still learning about the damage it can cause. One thing for sure, it brings about more strokes, says Dr. Garni Barkadarian, a neurosurgeon at PNI. The virus invades the blood vessels and pushes certain cells into a hypercoagulable state, meaning that they gum up our arteries. Patients that are already prone to strokes are at the greatest risk, Dr. Barkadarian says. They may recover from COVID, but have a devastating stroke in the meantime, risking grave injury or death. Less clear about COVID is the damage it appears to do to the brain. COVID survivors have arrived at PNI with headaches and brain fog, and their MRI scans show strange abnormalities, Dr. Barkadarian says. It's unclear if these changes are lasting. One easy step to take, get a vaccine. They are very safe and more effective than seasonal flu shots. It's amazing that we have these vaccines, Dr. Barkadarian says. He compares their development to landing on the moon, developing the internet, and mapping the human genome. Listen to this episode to find out more about COVID and the brain and why Dr. Barkadarian has such confidence in vaccines. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So we talked about a year ago at the beginning of this uh, pandemic. Right. What has it been like to do brain surgery during COVID? Well, it's been, it's been interesting, <laughs> to say the least. COVID was obviously very disruptive and uh of course had a lot of challenges for the patients who were suffering with the disease but it also led to a number of logistical issues that we were dealing with in the hospital um something as simple as just having enough beds for patients mm. having enough intensive care unit beds for patients uh patients that typically you know our neurosurgical patients would often go to the intensive care unit at that time and then other things like worrying about the safety of the patients get contracting the virus in the hospital, worrying about the safety of the caregivers in the operating room, the nurses, the, the people taking care of the patients. Um, so all of that was, was of significant concern pre-vaccine and actually continues to be a concern post-vaccine due to issues that we can talk about. The Delta variant? The Delta variant, but probably more importantly, the, the lack of complete vaccination. Mm -hmm. That's a major issue that um, we were worried about and has started to show its ugly head. Mm. Yeah. So where do you think we are now? Are, is this, are we back? To, are we going back to where we were a year ago? Well, we're not that bad. We're not as bad as it was back in March of last year, or the worst was actually December, January, where... Los Angeles, Southern California had a horrible surge. I remember. That, that was akin to the New York surge of the, at the beginning of the, of the pandemic. Um, and that was where people, you know, the hospitals were so full of patients who were so sick and requiring long-term ventilation that we did not have space for our other patients who needed sometimes urgent surgery and it, it affected certain patients' health. Oh, certainly. And we, we definitely know of patients who had delayed care either from their own volition or due to hospital capacity issues. 
and it definitely was a detriment to patient care. In, and we're talking about brain surgery here. We're talking about any surgery, any but surgery, including but brain surgery. Yeah. And you know, a lot of what we do is brain tumors, and there's some urgency for brain tumors, particularly malignant tumors. And um, you know, we definitely had some cases where patients either themselves delayed seeking care because of the emergency rooms being full, or they were afraid of going to the emergency room, rightfully so, um, or the uh, the fact that there just wasn't space mm. in the hospital and the OR was asking us to pick and choose which cases to do. Um, if a patient was thought to need to go to the intensive care unit after surgery, they would ask us not to do that operation because there were no beds available. And, and we have a, a relatively large number of intensive care unit uh, beds for our hospital size. And even with that, um, and its expansion, we were still dealing with those types of triaging care for certain types of patients. So COVID was crowding out other patients. Correct. COVID, COVID uh, infected patients were crowding out other patients. Exactly. Yeah. So what? Where are we? Where are we? When you, in your, the population of patients that you see, what? How are they? What do they look like? Vaccine versus no vaccine. Um, what, what's it look like? What percentage yeah. are vaccinated? Thankfully, uh, for my patient population, the vast majority of, of our patients are vaccinated. Part of that is we live in on, on the west side of Los Angeles, and most people on the west side tend to be more vaccinated. If you go farther inland or north into central California, you'll see a lot of unvaccinated patients. And, and we do operate on patients who come in from, say, um, central, central California, Central Valley, Inland Empire, et cetera. And um, those patients often are not vaccinated volitionally. And um, we have to deal with that aspect. So what do you do? I mean, well, we still we take care of the patient. Yeah. Obviously, we test everybody. We make sure that they don't have COVID uh, on them. And if they do have COVID and their surgery can wait, then we ask them to wait three weeks for surgery. If their surgery can't wait, then we take the additional level of precautions. Everybody wears N95 masks, including the, the caregivers. And there are certain precautions we take in the operating room. And then we take these patients to the OR. And, and I've done that a few times, um, even after the vaccine has been out. And then, um, and then we also encourage patients to get vaccinated. And um, you know, for some patients, there are some medical reasons not to get vaccinated. Say you're immunosuppressed due to cancer therapy, et cetera. But the vast majority of patients are able to get vaccinated and should get vaccinated. And we have a lot of reluctance. We have a lot of reluctance that's quite unfounded. I think there's um, the, the, if you talk to patients who are unvaccinated, um, while you would think the biggest uh, factor is political, it's actually more just this skepticism of hmm. the safety of the vaccine. Hmm. But we have plenty of data to show that the existing vaccines we have in the United States are very safe. Every vaccine, there's always a possibility of side effects. That was the same case with the flu vaccine, the same case with the chickenpox vaccine. Um, all, there's always a possibility of side effects but those are a minority. We're talking a fraction of a percent of patients would get a possible side effect. Um, whereas we know that patients who contract COVID, there's about a 2% chance of dying just up front. And then there's about probably a 15, 20, 25% chance of long-term major physiologic problems. And we see that long, the long callers, as they say, have pulmonary problems. So they become short of breath. 
they are not able to get to the same physical capacity that they used to have. And we're talking athletic people that are just now incapacitated. Mm. There's COVID-related um, brain issues. Yeah, t- let's talk about that. I was going to ask. Yeah. What what are we what are you seeing? Well, um, the most common thing we we have seen are related to vascular issues. So meaning people are getting strokes while dealing with COVID and then they have to deal with the long-term issues of those strokes. Okay. So that's probably the most common thing we've seen with with COVID. How why does <clears throat> why does COVID lead to stroke? Well, that has to do with how the virus interacts with the blood vessels, but uh, the virus has a way of uh, getting into the blood vessels and also working with the with the clotting cells to the to the point where they're just not functional, and then you get this hypercoagulable state. What does that mean? Uh, prone to clotting. Okay. okay. Prone to clotting, and then as a result. When you're very sick, in particular during the cytokine storm that happens about a week to 10 days after the infection, then um, your patients are prone to strokes or heart attacks or other sort of pro-clotting type problems that can happen. Okay. And so... So then you've got this stroke to deal with. Then you have a stroke to deal with and you may recover from COVID. COVID's gone in your body, but you may have a devastating stroke. And we've seen that in a number of patients. We've also seen some nonspecific findings on MRIs where a patient comes in, has some mild complaints, maybe some headaches, maybe some brain fog, and the MRI shows some nonspecific uh, abnormalities in the brain. Hmm. And um, you know, we're still learning about that. We're still trying to understand what, what that means, what that means in the long term, what that means for how to treat that patient. But it, you can tell that in a percentage of patients, they do have some brain-related issues even after their disease is gone. We don't know, we really don't know what this virus, this virus seems to affect every system in the body in some way or another. I mean, it affects every system in the we're body. Just, and we're just learning all these things. And we've, we? we've learned a bit about, you know, in the year and a half that we've been dealing with it, we've learned quite a bit, but we don't know what the implications are five years from now, 10 years from now. Yeah. And interestingly, that's the same concern from hesitant patients who don't want to get the vaccine, they are worried that they don't know the one-year or 10-year issues after the vaccine. But the general philosophy and my philosophy is you have a disease that you know can kill you and you know can cause long-term problems. And you have a vaccine that you know works very well and has a really small chance of any sort of long-term issues. And most patients who got the vaccine, myself included, done fine. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think the, the decision is very obvious. I would, I would choose the lesser of the two evils. The vaccine is really fantastic. It does a great job. People who are vaccinated, who are getting the new variants of COVID, the Delta variant, which is a lot more contagious than the prior How, how much more contagious is this thing in your um, estimation? I've, I've heard up, upwards of 100 times or even 1,000 times more contagious than the first variants of the COVID uh, vi- virus, SARS-CoV-2 virus uh, from last March. Now, I don't know what that really translates to. Um, it's more contagious, meaning it's easier yeah. to transmit. And sometimes even this, the standard masks may not work very well. And an N95 would be more safety for a, for a patient of concern. But we're still trying to understand how aggressive it is. Yeah, It appears that the vaccine works, meaning that you mm-hmm. can still get the, the virus with being vaccinated, but you don't get that severe illness, that long-term issue. It's a lot more blunted, but um, it is still a possibility of getting it. So this is why we are recommending 
staying masked um, indoors, and also to take all the typical precautions we have been doing prior to the vaccine rollout, but at the same time, recommending everyone to get vaccinated. Oh, God, yeah. And um, already the uh, state of California has announced that its employees, the, the state employees, will be mandated to get vaccinated sometime very soon. The Veterans Affairs system, so VA hospitals and the systems are requiring vaccine mandates. And I just heard yesterday that the federal government is now going to require vaccine mandates for all federal employees. And this has been vetted through the Department of Justice and the Department of Justice is, is recognizing that this is lawful in this uh, er, uh, pandemic state to be able to do that. And I, I think we're going to start seeing that in our health systems as well. We're going to start seeing our large health systems. I've, I've heard University of California is thinking about this as well, their health system. And we're hoping that other health systems will start picking this up and mandate, Mandating. mandate the vaccines yeah. for everybody that works for the health system. I think it comes as a, as a surprise to people who don't work in health that that hasn't been the case already. Yeah. Um, in Oregon, where I live, it's um, healthcare workers are not mandated to have the vaccine, which yeah. is surprising to me. Yeah, I mean, there's some philosophical issues with regards to you know, personal choice mm. and um, and uh, dealing with some of those aspects, uh, some of those ethical aspects. But the reality is, this is a public health issue, mm. and people are still getting sick. People are still dying from COVID, and it's still quite very serious. We're not out of it yet, and we really need to do everything possible to get to that 70, 80 percent vaccination mark. On the other side is the, the children who are unable to get vaccinated. So right now the vaccine is available for 12 years and older, but um, you know the six months to 12 years, we're still learning about that. That may come about down the line, but I don't think that'll happen during this surge that we're seeing right now. Um, so I, I think that's something to consider because even though you may feel you're safe because you're a healthy adult, you have to worry about your children. So you can have a fully vaccinated family, but the children could still be very vulnerable. And children get uh, a different type of complication of COVID than adults. They typically don't have bad uh, flu symptoms that, that they would from a uh, COVID infection, but they do get this inflammatory thing called MISC. And uh, that's an issue that we're seeing more and more frequently in children. And that can lead to long-term issues systemically for them for the rest of their lives, including oh things like aneurysms and heart blood vessels and some very serious issues. And again, we won't know how this manifests itself in these kids. Yeah, we don't know the long-term issues, right. but we, we also have seen some of these delayed issues in children. So it is, it is definitely a concern. It's a concern that we still can't vaccinate our children. We wanna do everything to protect them. And part of the way to protect them is to have all the adults vaccinated. Right. So as a medical professional, highly trained, you had no hesitation about taking a new mRNA vaccine. So I, I did my research, yeah. much like everyone else who has been learning about this disease over the last year and a half. Um, I, I paid attention to all the publications that were coming out. There was a significant amount of um, information on YouTube both from the government sources, from the scientists. and Good information good, on YouTube. Good information, describing how the virus works, describing how these vaccines work. The most convincing data to me was from the clinical trials. So, so I was one of the first people to get vaccinated. And um, I had no hesitancy getting vaccinated because I saw the data 
that was looking at, I think, 10 or 20,000 people who are vaccinated with uh, either the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccine, and it showed the safety profile was, was fantastic. There's very few side effects, very basically no major, uh, major issues. And then we also saw that the chance of getting a COVID infection that was symptomatic with uh, the vaccines was you know, less than 5%. I mean, it was very, very effective. And so that was a no-brainer for me mm. to go forward with that. And I did get some side effects when I got vaccinated, like everybody else did after my second dose. Um, I got the Pfizer vaccine after the second dose. I got some flu-like symptoms that lasted for about a day, and then it went away. Yeah. And that was it. Yeah, the same with me and Moderna. Yeah. And um, and that's fine. And that's totally expected. And, um, you know, I think the, the question is going to be, do we need to update the vaccine to deal with the new variants? I think Moderna, booster. yeah, a booster shot. I think Moderna and Pfizer are working on maybe a different formulation, or maybe they still stick with their original formulation, just boost immunity. So those are all really important things to to look into in the next round, which is probably going to be in the in the near, next month or two. Next, uh, the next round. You mean the next? Well, we haven't gotten much guidance as to should there be a booster shot. Okay. And if so, when? But most people had estimated that the protection from this vaccine would last somewhere between six to nine months. And we're basically there. I see. So I think, I think I there see. are some serious discussions about this. And hopefully we'll hear from the CDC and other authoritative agents, agencies as to which way we, we need to go. What is the reaction when you tell an unvaccinated patient, when you advise them to get the vaccine? Are they, do they hear you? So when they're my patient, they tend to listen more. Yeah, yeah. There's already a relationship there. And um, some of them have some logic to why they're not vaccinated. Say they're on steroids and they're immunosuppressed. I think that's logical. You know, if you're immunosuppressed, the vaccine just may not work. Right. You know, so, so that I understand. And that's a, a unique, specific, and a mi- minority of patients uh, have that issue. Uh, but some patients were against the vaccine due to the things we talked about. And there I sit down, I explain to them, we talk about how we're vaccinated. I, I discuss the statistics. One key statistic is that um, <clears throat> of currently, of all the patients who are hospitalized due to COVID, 98% of these patients are not vaccinated. Yeah. I mean, that is basically black yeah. and white, that the vaccine is doing a good job. It, it's doesn't prevent spread as, as much as we would like, but it does prevent severe disease. And that's really what we want. We want to prevent people from getting so sick that they have to get hospitalized, they have to get intubated so that they have a machine breathing for them, or they even, even worse, they have to get on a heart-lung machine where the, mm. the blood supply is circulated artificially so that we can boost the oxygenation because the lungs are just not working. And so those are things that we are seeing drop off when people get vaccinated. Yeah. So that's got to be compelling to people when they hear these sorts of things. I think it's compelling. I think people are starting to, the people that were hesitant from uh, a safety perspective on the vaccine are starting to turn around and come around. But I just read um, this morning that the vaccination percentage is still only about 57%. And that's just not enough. We really need to be upwards of 70, 80%. So there's about 20 or 30 million people or more, if I do my math right, that still need to be convinced yeah. on this. 
And, and then thankfully, you know, some of the political aspects are starting to melt away a little bit. I was happy to see President Trump encourage people to get vaccinated. I think this was over the weekend. Um, you know, I think most political leaders are now encouraging everyone to get vaccinated. We heard the governor of Alabama um, dealing with that. that as well. So I'm glad to see that this is becoming less and less of a political issue. And hopefully people will ignore that aspect and just move forward. I think people should remember that this was a bipartisan effort and uh, the vaccine was really developed um, with everybody's input and everybody's endorsement. And so this is really an American uh, effort and we really need to encourage everybody that this is just for the safety of the country and for the world that we just need to get vaccinated. And now a message from our sponsor. The Think Neuro podcast is brought to you by Pacific Neuroscience Institute Foundation, a nonprofit 501c3 organization. If you're inspired by what you hear and wish to support our mission of education through innovation, please visit pacificneuro.org foundation. The development of the vaccine was sort of a biomedical miracle. If you look back at how long it usually takes, remember we were talking about not having a vaccine for five years or something. Yeah, just a year ago. It's it's fascinating. And so I was actually talking to somebody about this uh, a, a week or so ago. You know, if you look back at the achievements that we have made over the last hundred years, and you just think of the biggest ones. You know, I would say landing on the moon, huge achievement. The internet huge achievement, mapping the human genome, huge achievement, right? Things that were moonshots that were thought to be impossible. And then there was the coronavirus, which is a common cold virus that people have tried for 150 years to make vaccines against the common cold and people, people gave up because it was so hard. And then SARS came out in 2003 in China, and that's the same coronavirus family and then people, again, tried to do it again. They tried to make a vaccine against the SARS, the, the coronavirus, uh, the SARS virus uh, at that time. And they failed. They tried for a number of years, millions and millions of dollars of uh, mm. NIH funding went to this and they couldn't do it. It was not possible. And then at that time, the SARS went away. Then we had another uptick in 2011 with MERS, which is another cousin of SARS. And then that went away. So nobody was putting a lot of effort into it at the level we did recently. But it goes to show that if, if you have a concerted effort and if you have enough resources, I mean, literally billions of dollars was spent on developing this vaccine and actually trillions of dollars dealing with the pandemic, then it is possible. And we did something, we the scientists did something that was... Uh, really thinking outside the box, a different type of vaccination uh, philosophy, different type of vaccination approach. And it's it's amazing that it that we have this vaccine and we have it, I thought, I think within 12 months, no, what am I saying? Within nine months of the pandemic, we have a vaccine. Yeah. That is unheard of. Unheard of. Even for other types of vaccines like, like chickenpox, like measles, like mumps, that takes about four years on average for the vaccine to be perfected and uh, to get to the point that it can actually work. And here we have a functional vaccine that works very well. Better than better than most flu vaccines. Better than right? most flu vaccines yeah. um, and, 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 and in nine months. That's yeah. just phenomenal. Yeah. And so I'm very proud to be able to work with scientists and 
physicians who have led the effort on this. And it's just an amazing uh, feat of modern medicine. And I think we really need to embrace it. And now we just need to get the public health part of it right. People are working on it. It's, it's going to happen. Yeah. But it's just happening too slowly. And we're going to see another surge. We're in the middle of another surge right now. And it's going to get bad. Um, but ironically, it's going to affect people who are not vaccinated much more than people that are yeah. that are vaccinated. Yeah, there's going to be half yeah. the nation's going to have a pandemic. Yeah. So I do want to talk a little bit about um, some of our neurosurgical Please, experiences. Yes. You know, as we were talking about, the hospital had limited number of beds. And yet we still had patients to take care of. We had brain tumor patients, brain cancer patients, and other types of patients that were were sick and they needed surgery. And we didn't want to turn them away. And um, we had to get a little creative in, in our approach. And while this is not a new thing, we've actually pushed the envelope a bit in regards to where a patient actually needs to go after surgery. So the traditional approach is that if a patient has a brain tumor, they go to the intensive care unit, they're observed there overnight or maybe even a couple of days. And then after they're deemed healthy, then they go to a lower acuity uh, bed in the hospital. They're there for another couple of days and then they go home and they convalesce at home and then they're back back to rehab, back to uh, their normal lives. And so that's, you know, two to four days in the hospital or longer and utilizing the intensive care unit for one or two days. Which is impressive. Which which is actually better than it was five or ten years yeah, ago, yeah. But, but still that was the comfort zone for California, United States brain surgery. Okay. Now in Canada, there, there are people who are doing outpatient brain tumor surgery, meaning they go home the same day and they're able to do it because they educate their patients and the patients are motivated to do that. Here, we tried to do that a few years ago, but there was this concern of the safety of having somebody leave so early and patients were not motivated. How do you educate patients to shorten that stay? You, you have to, number one, there's a lot of conversation before we even enter into the operating room. So what to expect um, in the hospitalization, what to expect in surgery, what to expect afterwards, how your pain will be, how to manage that pain. We effectively give them all of the discharge instructions before they even have the surgery so they know what to expect. And then we also tell them if you do these things, the likelihood of your pain being bad is very low. And we're not talking about narcotics, we're talking about some basic things that can be done. Um, and then we, we talk about mobility, we talk about getting them up and moving them around. And the, the literature uh, is supporting this, this uh, philosophy to decrease post-operative complications. The worst get, thing is- Get people out of the hospital to To get people out of bed. Get people out of bed. Uh, the biggest risk factor for a patient after surgery is them lying in bed and not moving. And deconditioning. They get deconditioned. Their lungs don't reinflate, which means that they are more fatigued. They may not ventilate very well. They're not getting air into their, uh, their body very well. And as a result, they may even be at risk of developing pneumonias. Also, they because they're not moving their arms or their legs, they're at risk of deep vein thrombosis, the mm. clots in the veins that can travel and cause problems their legs or arms, or also travel to their lungs and cause problems in their lungs, what's called a pulmonary embolism, which could be fatal. So we've known this for many, many years, that by getting somebody to walk right after surgery, the same day after surgery, actually increases their circulation, gets the muscles contracting, and gets the blood flowing, 
and decreases those chances of making, uh, developing a deep vein thrombosis. So in patients who can and are safe to do that, we encourage that. We also encourage them to use a breathing apparatus to help reinflate their lungs and uh, some other activities like that. That same maneuver also decreases pain postoperatively for cranial procedures because they're standing up. So there's less blood flow. Interesting. Uh, and so they have less pressure. That simple thing. That simple yeah. thing. And it also decreases some of the wound healing complications because when you lie flat, pressure goes up to the head, you can affect the seal of the repair that we had done. Whereas when you're up and moving around, that pressure goes down, it actually lets the seal work better. So our complications such as uh, cerebrospinal fluid leakage or CSF, which is the brain fluid that bathes the brain, that risk goes down significantly just by getting them up and moving them around. And this is not new. This has been published. Our colleagues in Italy have published on this, on a specific type of surgery. But this is something that is part of the bigger picture of getting people up and moving or moving around. When did the get up and moving um, approach start? Well, that's been going on for a few decades. Okay. This is not this is not new. Not, okay. But getting them up so quickly, so quickly, the yeah. same day, um, probably in the last ten years, fifteen years, that has become more commonly accepted. And really, in the last five or ten years particularly in this era of what's called enhanced recovery after surgery or ERAS, which is really the idea is to prevent complications or decrease complication rates. And as a result, patients are going home sooner. Yeah. And so that was what we found. And as a result of patients being motivated because they don't want to be in the hospital any longer than they need to. And people were asking, can I get my brain surgery done as an outpatient? Whereas it's before, amazing to even say that. Yeah. I mean, that phrase alone yeah. is... Impressive. I mean, before, patients were saying, I'm going to be in the hospital for a week, right? Keep me as long as you want. And now they're saying, well, I want to get home as soon as possible. And so um, now patients are motivated. And as a result, we've seen our patients shift so that the percentage of patients that need the intensive care unit was cut in half or lower. And we had a number of patients that were going home the same day after surgeries that were typically would keep a patient in the hospital for at least a few days. What sort of surgeries are those? Brain tumor uh, operations, primarily pituitary tumor operations. So that would include things like uh, metastatic brain tumors, meningiomas, wow. gliomas, things like that. Is it, um, are they more likely to go home sooner if you do minimally invasive keyhole surgeries? I think that's part of it. It's part of the bigger picture. And that's a philosophy we have here yeah. at Pacific Neuroscience Institute. Um, the idea is that it's multifold, but the idea is that because you're not manipulating much tissue um, on the scalp, the pain is less. So you have less of the, the skin causing pain or the muscles that were dissected causing pain. Muscles. There's, there's muscles yeah. on, the, on yeah. the head, the chewing muscles, and there's also muscles that um, are the muscles of facial expression, like your forehead muscles, and there's some in the back, and sometimes that can trigger pain. Um, additionally... Because we're not exposing a significant amount of brain, because we're operating through a keyhole, basically, very little brain is, is being uh, manipulated. And when there's less brain being manipulated, that brain recovers much quicker. So it wasn't, a, it wasn't uncommon to see patients wanting to be able to leave within one or two days after surgery. We just now act on it. Yeah. But now we're saying, okay, yeah, you look fine. You want to go home the next day? That's totally fine. You want to go home the same day? And we have certain metrics that they have to meet. There's obviously, there's some safety things we want to assess. If they look fine and they know how to alert us if there's any issues from home, 
then then we let them go home. So you could come into the hospital, say at six in the morning, or mm-hmm. the surgeries always seem to be very early. Yeah, uh, <laughs> they come in at five, yeah. five a.m. for uh-huh. a seven a.m. surgery, <laughs> and theoretically they can be home by five p.m. That's incredible. Yeah, and that's happening more and more. That's happening more and more. Yeah, and the and the theory also is that the less time in the hospital, the less time you risk infection and. Is that yeah, less time in the hospital? Um, so we haven't seen a patient catch COVID at our hospital. Oh, COVID particularly, yeah. But we we do know that if you're in bed um, and you're just in the hospital for a few days, there's a chance of getting urinary tract infections yeah. and pneumonias and things like that. That that comes with the territory. But yeah, now we we see them uh, mobilizing more. And then the other advantage is that we're freeing up more beds for patients that are sick with COVID or have other issues like heart attacks and other typical things that bring a patient to the hospital. And um, those patients uh, are able to uh, utilize the beds more frequently. And uh, it just creates a, a better That's throughput, yeah. better better workflow in the hospital. Fantastic, yeah. yeah. So th- regarding the patients that were able to leave the hospital sooner, you know, we were having patients go home the same day or the next day. So we actually were able to publish this data and uh, this will be coming out in a journal called PLOS One, P-L-O-S One, and it'll show how our group, our team, has adapted to the COVID pandemic, and some good has come out of it. Which means that even after the COVID pandemic ends, we will still have this ability to accelerate surgical care and not utilize as much resources in the hospital and get patients home in a safe way and a reliable way. Yeah. So there's the silver lining. Yes. To COVID. A little bit of silver lining. A little bit. Yeah. But we'll take it. We'll take it. Did you, do you still have a backlog of surgeries that are caused by COVID or have you? No, we, we are functioning well right now. Everything's moving. Thankfully, right now our ICU has capacity and our ORs have capacity and uh, we're, we're working well. But back during the surge in December and January, we did have a backlog of a few months. And we for had, for elective and even non-elective operations, we had to wait, and we had to really pick and choose and triage patients appropriately so that we knew exactly which ones needed surgery urgently, because there was a cancer that we needed to deal with, or there was impending neurological problems. We actually created an entire triage system to determine this. Providence Health System had this across all of the hospitals, how to determine which patient uh, gets priority mm. when we had to make that decision. And we followed that. And um, and then, of course, there was a lot of discussion with the intensive care unit team, the hospital administration, you know, discussing, you know, why why would this particular patient needed to go? And, and there was a whole committee that had to review those mm. those types of cases. It's such a juggling act. Yeah. And hopefully yeah. we don't return to that. Well, that's the concern. And right now we're not there yet. But should this surge continue, we may get back to that point within the next few weeks. So, um, so this is why it's, it's quite important for people to mask right now. It's also very important for people who are not vaccinated to get vaccinated. Yeah, that's the message. And the vaccine takes a while to work. It takes about six weeks. Six weeks. So the first, so say you take the, the Pfizer's probably the fastest because you take the Pfizer first dose, Pfizer second dose three weeks afterwards. It takes another two weeks for the immunity to really build up. So about five weeks after the Pfizer vaccine, you should be well protected. I think Moderna, it would be six weeks. Just because of spacing on that. Yeah. And also Johnson & Johnson is about six weeks, just the way, it, even though it's a single dose, 
just the way that's formulated, it just takes time for that immunity to build up to a threshold that will be protective. Yeah. So I encourage everyone to get vaccinated, uh, but even then we may not see the full protection of the vaccine for six weeks from now. Yeah. yeah. Why do you think, what do you think is in it for people who are spreading misinformation about the vaccines? Oh, that's a tough question to yeah. answer. I, I don't know many people who are spreading misinformation. Um, I think it's probably driven by a multitude of factors. Probably there's some political aspects. Um, there's, there's clearly a, a component of people who are concerned about their civil liberties being trampled upon. And I understand that. I mean, sure, I'm not one to like being told what to do. Um, you know, I, I, I grew up in a household like that, but I'm glad that, that is not there. <laughs> but um, I, I think that uh, I think a lot of people share that that concern. I think those people just need to understand that this is for the betterment of everyone around them. It's not it's not just about them. It's yeah. about their friends, their family, their children. And quite frankly, if we want this, this country to open up again and to get our economy really back on track and start stop relying on the government printing money to continue um, keeping this economy going, um, then we need to, to do this. And um, that will keep our country in a very healthy situation when the pandemic ends yeah. compared to other countries. So I, I really think that this is a global issue that needs to be dealt with. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I just heard about one of these pieces of misinformation that are going around and that the, vir the, the spike protein in the vaccine is invading the brain somehow and is causing irreparable damage. I can tell you that that's not true. The science that we have, that we look at the way the, the, vi the vaccine is delivered by, by um, the particles within the vaccine, it doesn't cause any long-term issues because that spike protein lasts for a few hours. It's the immune, the antibodies that need to be generated from seeing that protein. That's what really is helpful. So what, what's happening is, and the reason we do see some of the side effects after the vaccine is that your immune system is ramping up. And your, your immune system is ramping up because it sees a new problem and it's like, okay, I gotta, I gotta figure it out. So the first dose, you get a little bit of that antibody. The second dose, those, those B cells are already trained and they're like, oh yeah, I gotta work on that. And then it amplifies the number of B cells that, that are uh, gonna use that antibody and pro uh, produce that antibody. And that's that ramped up immunity, that ramped up immune system is the reason why we see some people with headaches, some people with joint pain, some people with abdominal issues. You know, We do see all of that and fevers um, as a response to the vaccine. So it's not because the spike protein is invading and doing anything, it's doing its job and it goes away. It goes that, away. That mRNA lasts for hours, that's it. So that's it. It's yeah. just, it's what's what's left is the response in the body. Yeah. So yeah. that's See, what we want. people don't know that. Well, if they if they listen to what the government is, is saying, and if they listen to what the scientists are saying who are not you know, employed by the government, they can see that that's out there. And I think that people, tend to pick and choose what they want to hear. And this day and age is very easy to do that because of the way Facebook and Google works is they show you what you want to hear. And as a result, you can get very sheltered and insulated from um, the facts out there. And, and I think it's- Terrible rabbit holes. Yeah, and so what I tell my colleagues is that we just have to be the voice of, of science and medicine and we have to 
continually discuss this issue, continually talk about the facts, and maybe some, it may not affect everybody, it may not influence everybody, maybe it influences enough people to start looking at a different source of information and they can come to their conclusions over time. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Dr. Bergadarian, it's been, it's been a pleasure once again. It's always a pleasure. Yeah. Thank Delightful. you for having me. Thank, no, thank you. Thank you for joining us today on the Think Neuro podcast. Join us every month for a new episode and learn how some of the best minds in medicine are caring for the most complex structures in the human body. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe to it and please share it with a friend and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.